Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. just start just right off the gate with this idea, unstoppable church, unstoppable church. We're going to walk through the book of Acts a little bit and kind of highlight some of the characters in the uh, scriptures there. And here's what we want to see. We want to see what made the church really unstoppable. Because that's a really great way to describe the movement of Christianity in first century Palestine after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, this group of guys and gals were maybe about 120 people at the day of Pentecost. There was, a, there was a group of about 120 that were gathered together. Now, there were other followers of Jesus, I'm sure, but if we want to pinpoint the start of the church, we could look at the day of Pentecost about a month after Jesus' resurrection. There's a, a group of 120, but this group would explode, explode into six million followers of Jesus Christ by 300 AD. So we're talking a little over 250 years later, 120 moves all the way to 6 million. 10% of the Roman Empire, one out of every 10 Roman was a follower of Jesus Christ. Some historians say that the church grew by 40% every decade in its kind of infancy. It's, it's remarkable, just dynamic, this explosive kind of growth, unstoppable. Now, let's kind of take that into where we are, right? The American church. How is the American church doing? Well, Pew Research came out with a study, and they've said that, that Christianity, now we can debate this number, and trust me, I've seen different uh, kind of perspectives on this, but I'll give you Pew Research. They said that Christianity in America has decreased by 26% over the last 50 years, 26%. Basically, almost the opposite of uh, the explosive growth in the first century world is kind of what we're experiencing now on a downward trend. And so the reason we're jumping into this topic and what I really want us to kind of think about is, is there a way to reverse that trend? As Americans who go to church, is there a way we can reverse the story for our nation? Now, globally, Christianity is exploding in some different areas. But what about here? How can we harness back again the kind of unstoppable movement of Jesus? 
And here's what I want to do is I want to jump in to the really first start of the church of Jesus Christ. And I think there's a lesson we can learn from that kind of early days, really the, the, almost the first day of the church, and see that there's a lesson that Jesus taught his followers right before he left this earth and he ascended back to the Father. He taught them a lesson, a lesson that I think we need to learn too as American Christians, something so valuable and incredible that may, maybe if we learn it and practice it, we too can experience the unstoppable force of God's Spirit expanding the church. So let's jump right in. We're going to go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. If you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. This is the main idea of our passage today. We call it our big idea. So the big idea today in our first part of our unstoppable series is this. And this is the point I think Jesus is going to try to make, and we'll see two angels are trying to make. They're trying to teach the first century followers of Jesus this simple lesson. Stop looking up and go out. Stop looking up and go out. See, here's what happened. Right when the church was about to be birthed, it was distracted. It was looking up. It was looking up. They were thinking about the future. They were thinking about when God would move in an amazing way. And they were thinking about all these future events. And they were thinking about what, what's God going to do with the nation of Israel. So they were concerned for their nation. And they were concerned about the future. And they wanted to know how everything was going to transpire. How the end of days would come. How the apocalypse would come. How God's kingdom would come. And they were looking up. And that's not a bad thing. We're going to see that they were distracted by good things, great things, godly things. But they were still distracted because they had a mission to accomplish. And that's the second part. Stop looking up and go out. Go out. Stay focused. There's a job to do while you wait for me to come back. And I think if we could harness this lesson we too can see God move again. Maybe not in the same exact way percentage-wise, but I think what we can do is rekindle the fire that really sparked a movement that changed an empire. We too can have that same type of dynamic if we can learn this lesson as well. So let's jump in. Acts chapter 1, and here's how I want you to think. I want you to think of this passage almost like an Oreo cookie. Right, if you think of an Oreo cookie, you've got that chocolate on the top, chocolate on the bottom, and right in the middle, what do you have? Vanilla cream filling, right? Or maybe double stuffed, so you've got two layers of that wonderful deliciousness. That's what our passage is. It's wonderfully delicious like an Oreo cookie, okay? Don't dip your Bible in milk during the service, okay? So that's not, you're taking that idea too far. See, here's what we're going to see. It, you could call it, if you want to be a little more grown up, and maybe you're a, a grammar expert, it's called a bilateral construction, which that sounds boring. Oreo sounds much more delicious, right? It's kind of this A-B-A kind of dynamic. So really, the first part of our passage and the last part of our passage are saying very similar things, and that's kind of that rebuke that we said in the start of our big idea. Stop looking up. That's what we're going to see. In the first part, that's going to be the thing. Jesus is going to say, guys, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Stop looking up. The very end of our passage, we're going to see the same thing. The two angels are going to come and tell the disciples, stop looking up. Stop being distracted. And then in the very center of our passage will be the reason for this rebuke. 
And the reason is there's a mission. There's a mission that the church should do that should eclipse all of its concerns, that should be the number one priority, and that priority is to go out. All right, so let's get to our first layer of chocolate and see that stop looking up dynamic. Let's see how the first century followers of Jesus Christ were distracted. Okay, Acts chapter 1, start with verse 6. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Now, oftentimes when we read the scriptures, we just put in a lot of details that sometimes aren't there. A lot of background elements that are are sometimes not there. Sometimes we assume the tone of Jesus. I've noticed that in my own reading, that there are times where I'm reading through the New Testament and I'm assuming the tone of Jesus, and I really got to do more study to find, well, what was Jesus' posture in this? Am I being a little too strict and rigid where Jesus' tone is more merciful? Right? I think we do the same thing with the disciples sometimes, is we kind of assume that the disciples are always off a little bit. Now, that's kind of fair, because a lot of the times they are off, right? But we could read this kind of question and say, wow, if I said that as a, a first century, or sorry, 21st century American Christian, if I went up to the pastor and said, pastor, I got a question, when is God going to free us, and when is he going to give us a, a kingdom, I sound like some opportunistic, military-minded person, right? When are we going to overthrow the government, right? Or some dynamic like that. And I I don't think we should read this question that way. Now, it is true, sometimes the disciples, they miss the teachings of Jesus. Just several weeks ago, we talked about in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus was talking about the cross, he's telling his disciples, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm a king, I'm going to bring my kingdom, but part of bringing my kingdom is dying on the cross, is suffering and dying. And Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, says, no, I don't like this suffering and dying thing. Can you not do that? And Jesus had to correct him. So yes, do the disciples miss the mark sometimes? Absolutely. Sometimes are they a little ambitious and a little too eager for authority and for power? Yes. Two weeks ago, we saw Mark chapter 10 James and John asked the question of, I want some authority, Jesus. I want some power, Jesus. When you come, we want to sit at your left hand and at your right hand. So we do see them to be a little opportunistic. We do at times see them misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. But is that what's happening right here? I actually don't think this is a bad question. I'm not saying that their motives are completely pure, and I think we'll see that later when Jesus responds But I think most of what they're asking here is a good question. God does have a plan for Israel in the future. We see it later in the New Testament that in Romans 9 through, or 9, 10, and 11, that yes, God is going to do something unique with Israel in the future. So that's a fair question. And this idea of kingdom is also a fair question and a fair topic. The last meal that Jesus had with his disciples, Luke records it in Luke chapter 20. Look at what Jesus says to them, and this kind of helps us understand maybe what the disciples are asking for. Look at Luke chapter 22. It says, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, Jesus brought this language in. The disciples didn't make this kingdom language up. I now grant to you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Guys, you're going to get in. But look, he also gives them a little bit more. 
Not only are you getting in, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What is Jesus promising there? Hey, a kingdom is coming. I'm going to bring it. You're going to be a part of it. In fact, I'm going to give you some authority in this kingdom. See, with all of that in the background, now we think, well, maybe the disciples aren't asking a bad question. If we go back to Acts chapter 1, you just have to go up to verse 3 and realize, really, Jesus is the one who brought up this topic. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. So I like to assume that this question the disciples are asking, it's a clarity question. Hey, Jesus, you've been talking about this kingdom, and you told us that we were going to have some authority in this kingdom, and we know you're going to do something with the people of Israel. There's a lot of promises in the Old Testament that tell us that Israel is going to have some part in God's future plan. So, Jesus, when is this going to happen? It's a good question. It's a, it's a great question, and they're asking about the unfolding plan of God. So, they're not off. Here's a lesson I think we're going to learn. The hardest distractions to decipher, the hardest distractions to diagnose are the good distractions, not the sinful ones. The sinful distractions, they're just very clear, right? They're marked out by God. They're marked out by His design. We see that doesn't fit God's design. That's a sinful distraction. I shouldn't do it. We're not even going to talk about sinful distractions this entire morning. What we're going to talk about are the good distractions, the godly distractions that just move our emphasis in the wrong direction and then take us off the mission of God. And I think this is what's happening for our disciples. They're asking a good question about God's unfolding plan. And Jesus' response will be, guys, that's great, but I need you to focus. Look at Jesus' response. First Corinthians, or sorry, First Corinthians, that's a good book. You should read it. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. What is Jesus saying there? I think it's clear to see the disciples are not asking a bad question. They're not asking a wrong question. They're not asking a sinful question. Because Jesus' response is not no, it's not yet. Not yet. It's not time for that, guys. The Father knows what He's doing. He has a timetable. He has a plan. It is not for you to know. Think of this question. I don't know if this is your experience, but I'm just going to be very honest with you. Sometimes when I drive with my children, the blessings that God has given me, and it's a long trip. There's this question that comes that pierces at the very heart of my happiness that honestly makes me want to turn the steering wheel into the embankment, right? And maybe you know this question. Dad, are we there yet? Oh, right? We just got in the car. <laughs> I just got your seatbelt. Are we there yet? Right? I may not be able to take communion, just the anger that is in my heart right now. Right? That question, it's not a helpful question. does not make the car go faster. Right? It does not get us there any earlier. 
right? It's a distraction. It's a sign of impatience, and it makes dad's head explode. That question is not a helpful question because the kids need to be focused on something else. Hey, play your games, eat your snacks, punch your brother and sister. Just don't ask me any more questions, right? But like being concerned with our estimated time of arrival is not going to help. I do think, let's step back for a moment and say, let's maybe just confess a little bit that we do this too, right? This is not just a, a first century Palestine problem. This is a 21st century American church problem. We get obsessed, obsessed with the apocalypse, obsessed with wondering, when is he going to return? When is it going to happen? Is that the Antichrist? That's the Antichrist. I bet that's the Antichrist. I bet Oprah's the Antichrist. I bet this person's the Antichrist. I bet Nick Saban at Alabama, he's the Antichrist. I bet it's like, I don't know, you just, I'm just throwing out names, okay? Right, just all these different characters are the Antichrist, right? The beavers, the Oregon State beavers, they're the Antichrist. No, Oregon's the Antichrist. Phil Knight's the Antichrist. I'm just picking out names, right, okay? They're all the Antichrist. We get obsessed with this, and we're so focused on the future that we're presently lazy, Now, don't get me wrong. Studying is good. You should study. Study the return of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let that thing minister to your soul. It should. In times of trouble, there's nothing more uplifting knowing that event will happen. But knowing it will happen doesn't mean you need to wonder about when it will happen. And it doesn't mean you need to spend so much time trying to decipher when it's going to happen especially if it, miss, it takes you off the mission of God. I think we need to hear this as, an American, as American Christians. We're not going to know when Jesus returns. If anybody ever tells you it's happening then, open the Bible, show them that passage. Because Jesus says you're not going to know. So stop worrying about it. It will happen. When will it happen? I don't know. You're not on the planning committee. You're on the welcoming committee. Okay? So you don't need to worry about when it'll happen and the calendars and the... You don't need to. It's a distraction. Stop looking up. Go out. This is what Jesus does. So he doesn't directly rebuke this idea. He doesn't say, hey, it's sinful. You should never think about my return. Never think about what I'm going to do to Israel. Never think about the kingdom. No, he says, no, not yet, guys. But here's what I want you to focus on. He's going to turn their direction from the future to the present and say, I have a mission for you. Look what Jesus says. Verse 8. Okay, it sets up right there in the Greek, the English word translated but. It's a very strong kind of construction here. It's a a big contrast saying, hey, that's great, but turn your gaze over here. Jesus is saying, here's the mission. Stop looking up, go out. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, this term power here is a dynamic term. This word power here is used in the Gospels to describe the miracles of Jesus Christ. In fact, often in English translations, that term power is translated as miracle. So Jesus is telling his disciples right here, hey guys, you're not just going to be reminiscent about my ministry, you're going to reenact my ministry. The things that I did and the things that you saw, you may not see them to the same degree, but you're going to see them. Because I'm giving you power, the same power that I had. I'm going to give you that power. 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This promise of power is dynamic. And we see this kind of language and this theme used throughout the, go- or the gospel, throughout the book of Acts. And this power isn't something that's just like privatized to the closest followers of Jesus Christ. Not just the inner circle of the 12 or the three, but everybody who's following Jesus is described as having this kind of dynamic power. Let me show you this. Acts chapter 3, the same word is used of Peter. He's one in the inner circle. So there's the 12 and there's the three, Peter, James, and John. Well, Peter is described with the same word. Peter is talking to a group of people. They've just performed a miracle. And look, verse 12, Peter saw this opportunity and addressed the crowd, people of Israel, he said. What is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? So he's saying, hey, we've received this dynamic power, and this is why this has happened. But then we see another guy, the same word used, and he's not an apostle. He's not a disciple. He wasn't part of the 12. Somebody totally different. A man by the name of Philip in Acts chapter 8. Now, if you're very familiar with the Bible, you're like, wait a second, Philip, that was a disciple. This is a, a man by a different name. Or sorry, a man with this, it's a different man by the same name. Sorry, I'm dyslexic. That totally flipped it around. If you followed, good for you. Okay, look at this, Acts chapter 8. Not the apostle Philip, but a servant. And look at how he's described, Acts chapter 8. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and the great miracles. That's that term again. That term power that's used in Acts 1, that's used in Acts 3, is now translated in this passage as miracle. Signs and great miracles Philip performed. So what are we seeing right here? As Jesus' church starts to expand and grow, this power of the Holy Spirit is not just on the the apostles, not just on Peter, James, and John, not just on the 12, but also on other followers of Jesus Christ. This expansive power is moving. And yes, do we see miraculous signs? Yes. But we also see the mission move forward. I go back to Acts chapter 1. This is how Jesus describes it. Here's what this power will do. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. See, oftentimes we really privatize the work of the Holy Spirit. Or we just only think of the miraculous, like with Philip and with Peter. But Jesus, before he leaves, reminds the disciples, here's what the Holy Spirit does. Does he personally transform your life? Yes, absolutely. We see that throughout the scriptures. God has given you the Holy Spirit. He's changed your heart, caused a new birth, a regeneration, if you will. And when the Holy Spirit's working in you, he's going to bring out the fruit of great and good and godly behaviors. It's the fruit of the Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit was given to the followers of Jesus Christ to personally transform their lives. And there are hundreds of stories in this church of God doing that through his Holy Spirit. And oftentimes we take these dramatic kind of displays of of miracles and say, look, the Spirit did that. And that's great. That's good. Those are wonderful things. But there's something else that the Spirit does. And Jesus highlights that foremost in Acts chapter 1. He says, you're going to receive power. What's going to happen? 
You're going to witness. You're going to testify to my death and my resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. This is the unstoppable nature of the church. The reason this movement hasn't died yet in almost 2,000 years is because the Holy Spirit is the fuel for this mission. He's the catalyst and the constant force that pushes the church to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. This is a very interesting phrase that Jesus uses in Acts chapter 1. He says, I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Paul uses that exact phrase in Acts chapter 13 when he's describing his mission. Hey, here's what God has told me to do. I'm not just going to preach just to the Jews. I'm going to preach to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, Romans, Greeks. And he says, I'm going to go to the ends of the earth. That phrase is so interesting because Paul and Jesus here are actually quoting a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, hundreds of years before the church ever started, God had a plan. He revealed that plan to a prophet by the name of Isaiah. It's always been his plan since the creation of the world. But he brings it up to the prophet Isaiah, and the prophet Isaiah talks about a servant of God. And look what this servant of God will do. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. He says, this is God speaking of his servant, you will do more. Look at this language. You will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. Do you remember the disciples' question? When are you going to restore the kingdom? When are you going to bring Israel back? I think Jesus is highlighting this verse right here for them because he wants them to see, hey, God's mission is beyond one nation. It's beyond America. It's beyond Israel. God has a global plan, not just a localized plan, not just a plan for one country, for one nation, even the blessed nation of Israel. You will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation, here's that phrase again, to the ends of the earth. See, here's what I I think Jesus is doing here with this quotation from Isaiah, what Paul is doing when he quotes Isaiah, is I think Jesus is, is addressing maybe some of the air that was in that first question the disciples gave. When they say, when are you going to restore Israel? When are, you going to, when are you going to bring the kingdom? I think they had, in a sense, a, a nationalistic view of the movement of God. Even if they realized that God wasn't just going to overthrow the Romans and make Israel this dominant nation, that all of their nations would be subservient to that nation, even if they didn't have this kind of geopolitical, uh, any, sometimes militaristic kind of idea, they were thinking very much about their nation. Their nationalistic concerns. And what does Jesus remind them of? I have a mission for all men. And the reason I'm using Israel is for the nations. It's not like plan A and plan B. I have one plan to reach the ends of the earth. Israel, you're going to be in this plan. But here's my trajectory. 
It's the ends of the earth. And if you think it stops at you, there's a problem there. I think Jesus is addressing these kind of nationalistic concerns. Now, let's ask, let's step back. 21st century American Christians. Do we need to hear that lesson too? Right? The lessons of, hey, this whole futuristic kind of expectation, when is the apocalypse coming? Point out the Antichrist, you pick your favorite, I'll pick my favorite, we'll play like Antichrist bingo, right? Bingo, I found him, like whatever. Maybe we need to learn the lesson there, step back and say, okay, hey, he's coming, but I don't need to decipher when he's coming, I'm just going to know that he is coming. Okay, well, what about the idea of nationalistic concern? Do we want God to bless America? Amen. I want God to bless America, Mexico, Canada, every country. But are there times where we get a little too concerned with our nationalistic concerns that we miss the mission of God? That we miss that God's movement is to the nations? And God's movement isn't just to make America a better place? Maybe we need to hear the very same words there. Guys, I have a mission. And I have given you my Holy Spirit to empower you to go out to as many people as possible. I want the globe, not just your country. I want the globe. And I want my church to want the globe. Not just their area, not just their town, their city, their country, their continent. No, the whole thing. Maybe we should step back and say, hey, I wonder if my concerns, which are good, which I say are even godly, but are they distractions? Do they get in the way? I'll be honest with you. I feel like I haven't always passed this test. I was thinking about this as I was reading through this passage, and I I felt a little convicted, especially, I would say, in my conversations with with a couple of my friends who who are not yet following Jesus. And in my conversations with a couple of my friends, and it was like, you know, during the COVID time and even before COVID and then during COVID, and, and I'm a very open person. I like to talk about a lot of different things. I just like to talk. I mean, I'll, talk, I'll debate the best flavor of Jello if you want. Like, we'll do that. We can walk through that or what the best Pop-Tart is. Like, we can walk through that whole process. I, I like to talk. And so I, I was kind of examining some of my conversations that I was having with my friends who weren't following Jesus, and I, and I realized that a lot of the conversations that we had were political conversations. Which, again, it's not a bad thing. But I evaluated and said, okay, Paul, well, were you a little imbalanced there? I mean, you were talking about all these things over here. Good things, great things, right? How can we help humanity flourish? How can we bring good to people? How can we remove bondage from people? How can we do all these things? And there's some political action there. Hey, who are you going to vote for? I'm going to vote for this person. Did you watch the debate? Yeah, I watched the debate. What did you think? All those things are good. But I realized, what is the number one thing I should be prioritizing in my communication with my friends who aren't yet following Jesus? Jesus! And I had to sit back and say, okay, God, I missed the mark on that. I missed the mark on that. I got way, I got, man, I got caught up in the frenzy of it all. And then really politics became my number one concern. Subtly just made this tiny little shift where this became my bigger concern and not the mission of God. Now God did grant us an opportunity to share the gospel in a great way with those friends, and that's awesome. But I I still think it was imbalanced. Maybe ask yourself, have you succumbed to that imbalance? 
Like when you're concerned, I know we're like gearing up, right, for midterms and all this other stuff. And maybe you haven't voted, but you're going to vote, and I think you should vote, and that's good. I'll give you my ballot on how you should vote at the end of the service. They'll pass up. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that, right? But as we start to churn up these ideas and start to think about these things, we need to ask ourselves, but yeah, is this distracting me from the mission of God, which is to spread his message to the ends of the earth? Have I missed on that? Maybe I need to stop looking up. I need to start going out. I need to stop concerning myself so much with these nationalistic concerns and realize the mission of God is global. And that's what should grab my heart more than anything. In fact, that should eclipse all my other concerns. Good concerns, but it should eclipse those things. Look how quickly the disciples get distracted again. And maybe we could find some comfort here that, hey, they missed the mark right after Jesus talked to them. Because right after Jesus talked to them, guess what happens again? We get to that second part, that chocolate, vanilla cream, chocolate. We get chocolate again. They get distracted again. Jesus just told them, go out. And they stand there looking up. Right? Look at this. Verse 9. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him, rising into the heaven. Two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. I just imagine the disciples like, just like mouth wide open. You wish somebody would have like, selfie, click. <laughs> I was like, ah. They're standing there, and these two men in white clothes, which I believe are angels. This is a description of angels. Look at what they say to him. Their first concern with the disciples. Maybe the angels like took their hand and like, <laughs> This is, what they, this is what they say. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him. This is a soft rebuke. It's a redirect. Right? They're standing there looking up. And I, you grant them some mercy here, some benefit of the doubt. They're seeing something miraculous. No wonder they're looking up. I'd be looking up too. And the angels come and say, guys, stop looking up. And what do they reassure him? Hey, he's going to come back. He's going to come back with clouds. Just like he left with clouds, he'll come with clouds, which is exactly how Daniel describes the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Messiah, the coming of the kingdom, is the idea he comes with clouds of glory. I don't know why clouds are glorious, but that means you live in a very glorious place. Okay, Pacific Northwest, maybe God's coming back all the time. <laughs> Always expectant is what we are. Is that a glory cloud or just a gloom cloud, <laughs> right? But he said, they're going to come back. And Jesus described himself as coming back with the glory cloud. So the idea is, guys, he's going to come back. They reaffirms it, but what do they tell him? Okay, he's going to come, but stop looking up. Go out. Get on mission. The first century church, man, did they grab this idea big time. We're going to see throughout the book of Acts that these guys stayed focused. Even the, if you think of the, the first century readers of, the, or of Acts, Luke is probably writing the, this, this account of Acts probably 30 years after Jesus had that first conversation with his disciples. So think about it. At this point, when they're reading this account, this is 30 years. They've been waiting 30 years for Jesus to come back. They're kind of worn out. Rome is still in charge. 
And so now they're reading this account and they're thinking, you know what? We have a mission too. We got to keep this thing going. We got to keep moving forward. We got to go out. There's a mission. Jesus will come when he comes. But right now we have a mission while we wait. I wonder, because I get this impression, and maybe I'm off, and I'm fine with being off, but maybe I'm off. I get the impression that the modern American church has subtly shifted some things and subtly substituted some things. The, the, the biblical practices that move the mission of God forward, we call it evangelism and discipleship. That term evangelism it just means announcing good news. That's kind of, think of it, that's the start of the Christian life. You come in and you see you need forgiveness of your sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You commit your life to that. That's called evangelism. That's kind of the start. Then discipleship is the maturing process of growing as a follower of Jesus Christ, continuing to take steps in following Jesus Christ. Here's what I think we've done. This is the impression that I get is that the American church has changed just subtly, substituted some things for evangelism and discipleship. And I think what we've done is we've substituted evangelism with political activism. And I think we've studied, we've substituted discipleship with study. And studying is a good thing. I hope it's a good thing. I have three degrees in this book. I hope studying is a good thing or I wasted a lot of my time and money. Studying is a good thing. Voting is a good thing. You should vote. Go vote. But these are not the things that are primary and ultimate in moving the mission of God forward globally. Just ask yourself this question, or series of questions. Maybe just take some time to reflect. Okay, ask these questions of yourself. What is the greatest thing that you can do to bring about the most good for the most people? What is the greatest thing you can do to bring about the most good for the most people. What is the thing that you can do to bring about the most flourishing for your friends and for your family members? What is the thing that you can do that will be most effective at eliminating the brokenness that people are experiencing and free people from the bondage that they're experiencing? If you answered any of those questions with political activism, I'm afraid you're off the mission of God. Because only the gospel can do those things. Think about the lesson at times I feel like we have not learned. That we go back to the Old Testament when God was on the mountain giving wonderful rules and legislation. He didn't need a Supreme Court, a Senate, House of Representatives, or anything like that. God just gave the rules. He's like, you ain't got to vote on it. It's my vote. And I'm omniscient, so I'm everywhere. I get all the votes. I filled every ballot box. He gives the legislation. And how does that go? Terrible. We had wonderful rules, wonderful laws, incredible laws in the Old Testament. The perfect moral code. And we messed it up. And I think when we have this idea that if we just legislate right, if we just win this court case and this court case and this court case, cool, we'll go back to Sinai. How did that go for us? Not good. Why? Because humanity is broken in here. 
in here, and there's nothing that could change a human heart except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a church, we need to rekindle that dynamic, that that's my greatest concern. Not that you vote right and your state is more blue or red or purple or aquamarine. I don't care what color, right? But is the gospel infused into every conversation that you have, all your interaction, all your mission, all your devotion, all your thinking, all your time is centered on there is a mission for God to change this planet and not just America. And the means to do that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not some representative, not some senator, not some congresswoman, not some president. No, none of that. Even if you you agree with them, it won't be enough because government is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And maybe what we've forgotten and what we're missing is that gospel is key and not the ballot box. Vote, vote, but don't get distracted. Don't get off mission because when you get off mission, you lose the hope of the world. You lose the hope of the world. Now, God's got to move, and God's got to do His thing. But I hope what He finds is a faithful church, a faithful church who said, we have not forgotten our mission. We are not distracted. We could be like the first century followers. Jesus, you gave us this idea, and for 30 years, we've been living under Rome. For 30 years, as they read the, the, uh, the book of Acts, for 30 years we've been living in a room waiting for this day, but we're not going to lose our mission. We're not going to lose our mission. That's to go out to the ends of the earth. So here's my question for you. Does your looking up stop you from going out? Does your looking up stop you from going out? Do you need focus again? Focus on the mission of God. Focus on the gospel. Focus on the power of the Spirit that's in you to literally change the world. Does your looking up stop you from going out? Can we commit to being a church that will always go out, that will always move the mission forward, that will always be centered and focused on the power of the Spirit in us to unleash people from bondage and bring them back to the Father? Not a church that's known for how they vote, but a church that's known for how they speak. They speak the words of God by the power of the Spirit to liberate the soul from sin and death. That's what we want sunrise to be, and that is what will make us unstoppable. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I thank you. I thank you for the conviction. I just right here, right now, would say, Holy Spirit, I'm sorry that I missed the mark. I know for myself, I get, I get caught up in, in the political podcast and, and all those things. And I, and I know, that's me. I'm there. Five times a day, listening to the political podcast and all those things. I know, I get caught up in it. Holy Spirit, I pray you forgive me. Forgive me for grieving the power you put inside of me. And that is power to be a witness to you, Jesus Christ. And I'm sorry, Christ, I'm sorry that I've let people take the stage from you. Or maybe in my conversation, what I'm highlighting is the, the, the policies and the positions of a candidate when I really need to be lifting up Christ. I need to be lifting up you, Christ. Christ, I'm sorry that, that 
I become more candidate-centered than Christ-centered. I don't want that. I, and I don't want this country, I love America. I don't want this country to be in a drought spiritually. Father, I want this to be a place where we, we can be a beacon of light to the nations. And Father, it's up to you, however you want to move. It's, it, it, it's, you, you've, you've got to do the work. But I hope you find us faithful. I hope you find me faithful to be committed to your mission. Help us to stay focused. Help us to stay fixed. Father, make us a church that is unstoppable because we want to go out and not just look up. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.